you guys see that uh, Elon Musk um, is now the seventh richest person in the world? Because this week, uh, Tesla stock went up 10%. Good for him. Yeah. We yeah, love he, it. He tried really, he worked really hard to get that value. Yeah. 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 So he earned it. He earned it. Definitely not everyone sweating their balls off in his, why is it a gigafactory? Because it sounds fucking cool. Right? Yeah. It's a, okay, it, it, it's a million or a yeah. trillion factories, right? Is that the way that works? It's a bunch of tiny factories all in, under one roof. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, killer. Like, congrats, Elon. You know, friend of the pod, obviously. When we're, we're just really happy to see him be so successful. And um, Jesus fucking Christ, we're going to have a trillionaire soon, aren't we? Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a problem. Uh, we've talked about it in previous episodes how workers, like in the best of scenarios, only can accumulate wealth like linearly and at like a rather you know low rate. Uh, whereas capitalists, because they are vacuuming up the surplus value uh, that they can off of lots and lots of workers, and as they continue to expand their capital accumulation, more and more workers, they. Uh, accumulate wealth exponentially which like is a problem if you know we're looking at the Doesn't viral well for the future yeah you know like you're looking at the covid cases and you're like damn <laughs> they're, they're going up fast god that's another fo- we're now hitting highs for the entirety of the covid outbreak yeah like the rest of the world is fucking getting their shit together and meanwhile we're over here like oh, let's go to disney world uh. <laughs> in 75,000 new cases a day uh. did you see though that uh, trump wore a mask for the first time and everybody creamed their fucking pants over it <laughs> like i don't there were people on twitter being like "Ooh, he looks so sexy in a mask i'm like you are fucking a degenerate piece of absolute oh my god like, I, I mean if, if you see less of his face i guess it's better yeah i mean i suppose yeah you don't see his fucking body and like the hair like that's all not that's that's all uncovered his face is like at least 40 percent less cheeto so yeah you know that looks good looks presidential he's got the presidential seal right on his cheek it's like (laughs) he's the president you can see it oh god uh but yeah speaking of presidents so apparently uh elon withdrew his support of of uh king yay so that's pretty pretty wild turn of events he was like, ooh, I didn't actually know what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out Ye doesn't like rockets very much. And he said my car looked like his shoe if it were gay. It was very <laughs> rude. And I don't support his homophobia. So what he actually, what, what it actually was, was like all of these... Truly horrendous political opinions yeah. that Kanye holds, such as like and, and, Planned Parenthoods and, and, being put in inner cities to um, like eradicate black population, do, do the devil's work. Which, which you know, there's a there's a kernel of truth there where you know, I mean, uh, yeah, like, Margaret Sanger is definitely virulently racist. Yeah, and um, eugenicist, eugenicist, um, yeah. But whereas, they do, whereas Musk believes a whole different set of horrifying, disturbing things. Eugenicist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I just for the record, like Planned Parenthood does more good for poor people of color than almost any other, you know, institution that I know of. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly um, having the having the right to determine what happens to your body is important for all people capable of bearing life but also like especially poor people and poor people of color who you know need desperately need access to any kind of reproductive services because they are so often denied to them so yeah yeah. but i i 
Yeah, I can't. I can't endorse. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. My my girlfriend Grimes has informed me that the it's called Planned Parenthood because they have little incubation tubes where you can put your children and then they grow up and you don't have to take care of them. And I won't do that, but I think other people should. And maybe we could put the, all the little babies in in a rocket. And send that to Mars, and then they could make a little baby colony, and then they make a baby empire. Um, I wouldn't mind if people stayed like babies for six to seven years, because their carbon load is much smaller, their footprint is much smaller, <laughs> and you can send them uh, further, you know, with less energy... <sighs> And then you can uh, make all of the co- the colony buildings that much smaller. So it's actually a very good idea <laughs> if we could keep humans as babies through the space, and then only let them grow once you've established your your uh, all of your your food production and everything like that. And you know you want to make sure that you have you know a big screen that you can watch your movies and your your, your Veggie Tales. You know, but not before that. Before, not before. <laughs> I don't know, Elon. <laughs> this fascination with baby incubators—it's a little sus. It's a little sus. You know, I don't know, man. It sounds like you might be a pedo guy or something. I, uh, I, I, everyone will remember that first. I made baseless claims about a heroic diver man was a pedophile. So, like, I am. I, if anything, I'm making false positives about who is a pedophile. I'm very scared of pedophiles, and also that's mostly because. I'm still very uh, mad that I did not get to be on the Lolita Express, even though all the other billionaires got to be on it. And it's not fair. It's just That's because true. you were robbed. You were yeah. robbed, Elon. Well, that's because they know you're actually secretly a, uh, a pedo hunter. So that, you, know, you're, you're, you were going to sick the Boston Dynamics dogs on all of the fucking uh, ruling class uh, pedophiles. Yeah. It's too bad that I, I guess our, our, skit from last week is already out of date you know that's <laughs> right? just the times it's yeah, the times we live in living. yeah you know? it's now you can't it's like never... like, I, like i log out of twitter for a day and a half and i come back and everybody's wondering if they're made out of cake and like these are just the times <laughs> that we live in and you know that's just that's, yeah. that's how it fucking goes there's, there's just never gonna be the kanye musk ticket it's never gonna happen it's now sad it's what we truly deserve <laughs> you know yeah. in, a, in a way so um so, David, you have a new piece out in Real Life Magazine. I do. Called for uh, Automatic for the Bosses. Well, I did notice because I narrated <laughs> it. So, um, so this is a great piece that's about, you know, gig economy workers have been uh, ruled by the tyranny of the algorithm and, you know, metrics and blah, blah, blah. And, and your argument in the essay basically is that now that's happening to... Uh, white like white collar workers, you know, people who are currently working at home during the crisis and very well maybe working at home as the new normal. And um, so, t- tell us a little bit about that essay. And so, for, I, I started thinking about this actually a long time ago when I the last thing I wrote for the Baffler when all the tech workers were starting to unionize, uh, and I was thinking out loud, you know, like is. Is it really possible for like these white collar workers that say like, you know, write the code for the Uber app? Can they really be in solidarity with uh, the drivers 
because their work their fundamentals of their work are in opposition to each other mm-hmm. right? right you know like the yep. the what the the white collar programmers are doing is to make the drivers either obsolete which is proving much harder than they originally thought in the claims that they that they made about being able to make self-driving cars right and so what their their job ostensibly is now is to uh hyper manage them in a way that keeps as much wealth going to the company as possible, obviously, but also to limit their... It, to, in order to do that, you also limit worker power, right? You make it impossible for workers to find each other, to talk to each other, uh, and to um, just create a system of total control. You know, th- this is where I go full Adam Curtis, right? Or, you know, like, what if your boss was an algorithm? You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true, right? You know, like, there, there is, you, you are creating this, like, total control system. Right. Uh, that for a while, you know, like, it's it's way over the top to do, the, like, that poem from the the Catholic priest in in nazi germany right where like first they came for the communists and i said nothing you know it's like first they came for the taxi drivers and i said nothing because i hate taxi drivers you know right you know? he's like there was a good like i think that it was tactically it was a great idea for yeah. these venture comp- venture capital assholes to go after taxis because who has ever taxis said fucking suck yeah I mean, with the exception of like thomas friedman who like you know who's, who always has something interesting to say about a conversation he had with a taxi driver you know um like who, when has anyone ever said like they had a great time in a taxi right that it, that it smelled nice or that you know like it they drove safely you know, or like, anything like you that. know it was a big deal when uber and lyft came to upstate new york right. where there was like a, a really intense i think i wrote something about it way back when but um there was a really intense debate happening our cabs are notoriously horrible especially here in troy i mean you'd order a cab and you'd end up with five other fucking you'd end up with so they pick up so many other rides that you would like have people sitting in each other's laps and you'd yeah. be going from you know a, a cab ride that should have taken seven minutes ends up taking 45 fucking minutes because yeah, they're picking 20 up 20 bucks yeah um and and so like it but the thing happened with uber and lyft that was inevitably going to happen right was that once they shut out all competition every cab company in troy has now closed there are no more cab companies in the region and now uber and lyft can jack their prices up um do the same ride sharing bullshit that cabs were doing and and so like that's that's kind of the brilliance of the model is that's a little far afield from what your essay was about but um i think it's you know, still like re- relevant to the conversation just because like that's that's the model, right? Is just drown the rest of the competition and then you can operate however the fuck you want. It doesn't matter. Grubhub did the same fucking thing. Yeah. And yeah. It costs a fortune to order anything a fortune. on Grubhub anymore. And you were talking about earlier the ability or lack of ability of people to have solidarity between like white collar uh, or, you know, middle class, like from a Marxist perspective to uh, blue collar working class from a Marxist perspective workers. And that's always been really difficult. Like yeah. even way back in the time of Marx, you know, when there was the engineer trying to build the 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 machine for the, you know, I don't know, the, the loom or whatever, like any type of uh, early engineering like always engineering was about trying to allow the capitalist to retain a greater portion of value relative to the labor dollar and it still is Absolutely. and you yeah. know and that's whether you're in automation engineer in a physical manufacturing plant um, such as i have been over my life or if you're you know writing ai code to like figure out how to uh you know best economically efficiently uh schedule 
people uh, work for other people, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the, it, it, you hit on that in the article too. Yeah, David. yeah. I bring in, I bring in two authors uh, to describe exactly that point, Chris. One is uh, David Noble, who did work uh, around the political economy of automation. And one thing that he found is that the usual story that we tell about automation is that that we bring in robots or AI or whatever in order to make the process more efficient. But in fact, it, it actually, the, the efficiency actually goes down quite often in the short term uh, when you implement these things because they're, un- they're mostly untested, right? Yeah. Or at least they're like, there's a proof of concept, but there's a whole bunch of stuff to work out in like real world application. And, and so what they're really doing is thinking long term, the boss is thinking long term to reduce worker power, which is in the long run way, way, way more valuable than uh, even a short or long term, just like, you know, the usual accretion of, of, of wealth up to the top. But it also does exactly what you said, Chris, where you take the, the knowledge of how to do a thing and you take it away from machinists, secretaries, you know, blue collar, l- largely considered blue collar work, and you move it up into the, ma- yeah, into the management suite, right? For, with people with college degrees in engineering or business or something like that. And so you, you recreate the factory in the image of these wealthier knowledge bases. And what that also does or at least what is like necessary in that process is what Shoshana Zuboff describes in one of her early books where capital must remove what um, she describes as oral cultures in communities. And Brittany, do you want to talk about what an oral culture is? Um, so oral culture often described uh, described as like in opposition to written culture is rather than like a linear narrative based on very like abstracted thought uh, oral cultures are based in like concrete material existence and more like circular narratives. You know, if you look at stories from oral cultures, they very often are like super pattern based. Things are happening over and over again, different iterations of them. And ideas are not like descriptions of things are based in the five senses in the material world rather than being abstracted out, which is something that you really only get once you have symbolic communication, i.e., you know, letters, written things. As you divorce the description of human experience from those things that can only stay in your mind based on contact with the material world and you're able to create a written record of it, it's easier and easier to abstract ideas out. Yeah. Um, and the point of, of like the, the biggest distinction for oral culture is that it can only happen person to person, right? That's, mm, that's okay, a really yeah. important signi- like important element of it is that it can't be, it's not, you can't have oral culture communication that happens like extracted from the face to face human experience. Right. That's and probably the, more that, that's relevant. perfect. Yeah. yeah. And so what, what that, what that does in the modern workplace is you replace the oral cultures of, say, machinists who are like, I know this baby, you know, like, you know, slap their hand on a gigantic steam powered machine or whatever, you know, like, I know this baby like the back of my hand, you know, like, and, and, and in order to get into a lot of these jobs, right, you usually have to go through an internship or a, you become an apprentice and a journeyman and you learn it through that very oral culture system of like, being physically in contact with the machine or or you know the electrical system or whatever and right. you don't you don't bring this up in the piece and i haven't read the zuba i haven't read shoshana zuboff's work at all but i can only imagine that part of the point of that argument is that the oral cultures of work and this has been my personal experience are often quite subversive because the boss tells you like this was my experience working in bars and restaurants and even when i was a telemarketer like the boss tells you how to do something and then when the boss is no longer around and you're training somebody you're like all right so 
like no joke this is how we actually do it like we don't really do it the way he says to do it um and so the loss of that which is one of the things you talk about here with working remotely and being managed by ais means that you lose that kind of worker autonomy in a way you're no longer able to you know, kind of like conspiratorial, conspiratorially work with your your fellow co-workers yeah. to do work that is very often the more efficient way to do it. Because frankly, bosses very often have no fucking clue what it's like to actually do the work on the ground. Yeah. And so what, what uh, Zuboff is describing is uh, the, the way that you replace tactically as a boss oral cultures with written cultures, right? You, so you, you remove those sorts of, here's how we actually do it moments and replace them with manuals and training sessions and like things that are very, very prescriptive. Yeah, we have a bunch of uh, uh, words for it. Uh, process of record. There you go. Uh, yeah. Standard operating procedures. So these things are incredibly important from like an institutional and administrative, uh, you know, position because, uh, you know, the idea of like if I make a machine and I don't properly document it and if I create a process and I don't make a standard operating procedure that can be followed to the letter, then if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, then that product isn't being made in the same way. And yeah. so, you know, um, we have in the manufacturing world, this thing called ISO, uh, 9,000, um, and one, I think. Um, but anyway, that's more of the quality department to worry about the numbers, but what it requires us to do is basically have everything documented so that like, Everything from a change of our operating procedure to an investigation to the actual like bills and materials and the schematics and like literally everything so that um, if we do it to this standard, this like ISO standard, then uh, we can make continuous improvement. We can also track uh, how uh, messed up we get from the ideal. And it's one of these things that like makes it very much from an oral type of culture and basically precludes that entirely and puts it into a written, you know, very exact type of culture. Right. And that's another thing you get into in the article as well, David, is through Zuboff is that the shift from oral to written makes workers easier and cheaper to replace because now you don't have to, when workers have to be enculturated into the work system via other workers, it's harder to replace that person. It's more resource intensive to hire somebody new. Yeah. Yeah. Because it'll take, it'll take longer to get that person up to speed and become as effective as a as a more seasoned worker but yeah it also means that the boss can't like i fire you and i hire you and i control the system that makes you fit into the you know the company instantly right and and what we see coming out now are all of these human resource automated systems that let you do the onboarding and all these other things that like make it really really quick and easy to find someone put them into a training system and then spit them out and get them working. I, I found at least four companies that are like saying that they can automate all of that workflow so that you can also remove a lot of those HR people that, mm. that would uh, otherwise be doing that. So this is the, the automation of management that we're starting to see is that like we've already pretty much accomplished the de-skilling well, I'll get to de-skilling later, but, you know, it, we've already accomplished the the almost virtual elimination of oral cultures at the worker level. And now they're starting to get rid of them higher up in the value chain, higher up in the in the management structure, because simply because, you know, it, it, we've created a system where having an oral culture is a kind of privilege, right? 
because that an oral culture usually feels good, right? And it creates solidarity and and an in-group status. And that is a very powerful thing, uh, no matter where it is, right? And uh, and so, of course, the rich and powerful want to keep it for themselves. And they and they recognize its power among everyone else. So they want to eliminate it wherever possible. Except for them. Yeah, except, yeah, except you know, and keep it for themselves. So how, how does this happen, right? It happens through the, those um, automated HR programs that I was just uh, describing, where they, you know, they, they make all these different systems that you can you know, pluck a, uh, a resume out of you know, the 5,000 that gets submitted for one job, right? And then um, they look for the right keyword. It, it'll find the right keywords, and it'll sh- give it to a, a human to like, decide which one eventually, right? And then that person can like, be funneled through all the different uh, paperwork that training and training and- to just like just bop, 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 do it all at the same time. And then what pops out the other end is uh, someone that is at least ostensibly configured to work the way that the boss wants them to work right Right. you never get the moment that britney was describing where you're like here's how we actually do it right and hopefully that can never happen right and that's what a lot of the working from home stuff is starting to uh seem like it it is happening so i have this like really telling quote from mark zuckerberg in there where he he says like we were kind of gonna go to um remote work already we thought that that was going to be the way to go and so we're just speeding up this timeline and that is um true of all sorts of things about the pandemic right is that like it's actually just speeding up a lot of the things that capitalists wanted to do anyway disaster capitalism yeah it's disaster Mm. capitalism it's a shock doctrine and what through their oculus platform i believe facebook owns oculus uh the the vr the vr and ar thing like they want to um use that and they also say a lot of the technologies that go into self-driving cars and and, and stuff like that to basically monitor the the worker wherever you know in, in some sort of remote work location like your home right right and so the 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 idea is webcam that, always yeah. on exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, your camera's always on. Uh, you might, uh, I, uh, you know, like, I, we can, you know, just sort of speculate here wildly, right? You know, like there's probably a, I, I, I put in there somewhere where it's like, well, you know, w- wouldn't you wa- want a nice ergonomic chair to do work in? Because your company will give you an ergonomic chair that that you could never afford, but it will have like a pressure sensor in the seat that'll let you know when you've gotten up, uh, it, or when like, you're jacking off. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it'll do all sorts of stuff to like to um to snitch on you and then uh i imagine you know then also you know like oh your your internet connected refrigerator is going to talk to your insurance company and tell you whether or not tell your boss whether or not you're eating right or eating while on the job when you're not supposed to yeah you know like all and then like oh gosh you have a ring doorbell well it's going to tell you when uh you know other employees come to your house if you're trying to, you know, have a, a union meeting. Yeah, if or, there's anybody suspicious in the neighborhood. Right, yeah. Or, if, yeah, or if, yeah, if someone shows up. Well, see, well, see here's the thing is that Ring, uh, an Amazon company, sells you on the idea that it's protecting you, right, by looking out. But what they don't talk about is how, no, it's looking at everyone that comes into your house. So, in, in a lot of ways, it's also looking in, right? right. Because it, it can tell you, it can tell a company or or whoever pay, you know whoever pays the most 
who is coming into your home. And that can be uh, as much of a surveillance tool for the inside of the home as outside. And now match that with your voice recognition Alexa and, you know, the webcam that your boss demands always be on. And, you know, what's really fucked up is that like remote work has, I think, so much liberatory potential. I can't count the number of jobs that I've had before that I would have loved to just done from home. But it doesn't like the way that it's being structured by management is that it's sucking all of the things about remote work that would like the fact that you would be able to watch your kids while you work, the fact that you'd be able to make your own hours, you know, if you want to get something done on a Saturday night, then that's fine. But no, like we're, we're maintaining all of the rigid factors of like being physically co-present at work like having to be there at specific times, having to take a, you know, strict 30 minute lunch break. It's just like, it's so, it's such a shame. And it shows you how like capitalism is the reason we can't have nice things because, you know, if you could do remote work in a way that actually fits your lifestyle and your individual needs, it could be a really great thing. Um, But we're not allowed to have that. Yeah. I, I mean, this essay is bringing up a lot of thoughts. Like one is that, you know, I work in a manufacturing environment where we make things to disinfect, you know, surfaces, et cetera. And like, there's a health and safety aspect of the product working reliably and like not hurting people out in the field. And, you know, a uh, real cost of like returned goods if they end up, you know, having some type of blemish. So everything about institutionalizing the process of record, as well as even, you know, training, et cetera, is ostensibly like for the purpose of reducing rework and ensuring like a really good product. And like, as the engineering and manufacturing world gets more complex, it's like ever more necessary that that exists. So it's like, on one hand, it's reducing a lot of like, you know, somewhat awkward, like, uh, you know, my boss to me styles of communication about, you know, training implements, it's all automated. Um, but at the same time, like, um, it, it, it's, it's somewhat important. And the other thing that this make me think a lot about is the fact that we are in this extremely panopticon, uh, surveillance state, uh, reality, like, you know, regardless of whether it's work or out in the streets or, you know, with the, uh, uh, GPS, uh, just constantly taking all your data and Facebook being able to advertise to you based on your conversations that it's spying on you and stuff. And like all this shit is so freaky and the architects of it and the owners of it know that it's freaky and they have to like be careful to the degree that they continue to ratchet it like you know like if if they do it all at once if they're just like yo uh your chair sensor said that you were jacking off at 4 p.m uh using your own private smartphone and 3g connection um you know people would rebel like they'd freak out right so it's like they need to develop little by little little by little and then they have to make public cases of like the most egregious so for example like there was a uh a man in troy who was arrested the day before the uh Black Lives Matter protests that had like 11,000 people. And he was arrested for, I guess, allegedly making threats to hit like cop cars with bricks or like a Molotov cocktail. And then he had, you know, posted something later in the day about like how to make a Molotov cocktail. And like, okay. That is extremely par for the internet, like as far as my experience goes, like looking, you know, on on various timelines and stuff, people are always popping off about crazy shit. Like, you know, like whether it's, you know, in lyrics of a song, like I throw a Molotov cocktail through the precinct, you know how we think, you know, like that kind of thing uh, is common. But 
if they can tie it to a specific event and it can be this this one guy, they can get, put that guy on trial for 20, yeah, he's years, 20 years in prison yeah. for popping thought off. Crime. Thought, for, it's not crime. For basically going on Inst- uh, Facebook Live and like having a braggadocious like uh you know venting about what he'd like to do to you know the the fucking popo yeah and like that to you know somebody who's like worried about police violence against police like oh of course you know you gotta clamp down on that like that's an actual credible threat of real violence it's like day before a planned protest yes yeah and so you know we let that slide right but like we being like the culture, the lo- the wider culture, right? right? Uh, but that's still like a really freaky thing that wouldn't have been possible without this panopticon surveillance state that, you know, uh, like is intercepting people's cables, whether it's a Facebook live, you know, stream to probably like four of his friends or, you know, whatever. And like, how many times have you seen something on like a meme about like how to make a Molotov or a meme about like, you know, I I don't know, just any random illegal act. And the fact that like they could, if they wanted to just be slapping federal like felony suits, like left and right all over the place, but they don't. They don't because they know people would freak out and like there'd be a mass pushback. Right. So it's like this further atomization of the the risk and penalty system. So we're just like, ooh, I don't want to say anything bad on Facebook Live because I might go to prison for 20 years. Yeah. 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 So I, I guess like the last component to this is um, the management of skills and de-skilling versus professionalization, right? So... De-skilling, we usually talk about, like, you take a, a complicated job, like anything from driving a bus to uh, being a nurse, electrician, right? You take all these jobs that require lots of training and oral culture, enculturation, right? And, and learning the, the ropes over a long period of time, and you automate part the hardest parts so that any individual is that much easier to to replace right so someone starts unionizing uh all the bus drivers you just throw that person out and you replace them with someone who can also like just hit the button when the bus is doing something it shouldn't do you know that's how we usually think about de-skilling and we also think about professionalization as uh something to like make something more credible to do quality control over the whole time frame or, or you know, jurisdiction of that job, right? So, like, you know, we want doctors and nurses and lawyers and, you know, the person that works on your HVAC system. We want them all to have, have gone to a specific sort of training. Maybe we don't know the individual person, right? But we trust an institution that they got that degree from, right? That's professionalization. There's, it means that there's like a textbook on how to do it right, which means you know how to do it wrong, which means if they do it wrong, you have uh, a way to, um, you know, sue them basically, right? You're like, that's all a part of professionalization. And while all of those things about de-skilling and professionalization that I just described are true, it also does uh, something else to, uh, together, where they work together to manage worker pools and like the ability to enter into different lines of work, right? So I'll, I'll preface this immediately by saying I am against child labor. <laughs> you know, uh, child labor laws are good, right? <laughs> I'm going to say that right off the bat. However, you know, it was very common in the United States for children to, do, to work in factories and, and a bunch of other stuff. 
um, on farms prior to the uh, Great Depression. And it was only during the Great Depression where we had to put severe limits on who was allowed to get into the workplace uh, so that we could figure out how to get the most amount of people, you know, housed or whatever. Get unemployment uh, down. Yeah, get unemployment down. They were like, okay, we, first we need to put up barriers to entering uh, the workplace, right? And so that's first, if you're under 18, or I don't remember what the number was, it probably wasn't 18 at the time, right? But compulsory education, right? So kids have to spend their work days at in school instead of in the factory, all right? Uh, and that's a good thing, obviously. But um, what we, but we can't really like make every American like super duper smart and powerful like they do in the Soviet Union, right? Because um, because a, a, a well educated workforce would then still be like everybody applying and competing for the same jobs, right? So we need to only allow some people to get in and others to get out, right? And so, and some are left out. So the de-skilling becomes like a pressure release valve. We're like, oh no, we don't have enough bus drivers, and so they, the, so as workers, they have too much power, right? Because we do, we can't replace them fast enough. So we'll de-skill that, so we we can have more a reserve army of more workers to replace them with if they're starting to unionize, right? And so you use professionalization to uh, reduce the pool of available workers for uh, all sorts of reasons. Uh, whether some some of them are good, right? You know, making sure that doctors know how to, you know, do the do the job, but then also for bad reasons, where you uh, take maybe a job that is well paid and has a lot of power, and you reserve it for uh, a couple of people that have been enculturated through college, right? Or have the and right, have to pay and to get that certification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can you can make sure that people are uh, tied to either yeah debt or have been sufficiently enculturated into a class, right? They're, um, I'll use a, a sociology term, they're doxa, right? They're, the, the way that they see the world and act in the world and their value set, right, are compatible with power, right? So you make sure mm. that people that get into the C-suite, into management, all kind of agree on the same stuff. And that's also part of professionalization. Mm. Um, and, but now that, you know, like, there's so much automation a lot of this automation is going up the value chain because the contradictions are coming home, right? And this is what I'll conclude on is that, you know, because if things are getting so bad, right, that you can't, now you can't even trust that enculturation process to assume that that managers and white collar programmers, right, they're starting to revolt. They're seeing that, like, I don't want my line of code to go kill a Palestinian kid with a drone attack, right? So, the, and so like, th this is untenable, right? So, what do we have to do? We have to separate them out. We have to do essentially what we've done to a lot of army and air force people who don't want to commit human rights abuses and atrocities, right? So, you separate them out. You make them work remotely in uh, either controlling a drone out in the Nevada desert or, you know, out in Palo Alto apartment, right? You sit in your own box. You don't talk. You The only way you can talk to your fellow workers is through a mediated uh, surveilled system and through that way you can control really complex work without any sort of enculturation or oral cultures developing that could become a, a danger to management right and so that th this is we're in the very early stages of this um i think but it's it's happening quickly right and this was always it's important to conclude that this is this was always the plan right uh, mark zuckerberg said it right th this has always been the plan Mm. Uh, but now we get to do it faster because we have one, we have a better excuse 
to uh, keep people apart, right? This this pandemic, which is real, right? But it's a better, it's an, it's another reason to do it. But also, there's more reasons to do it because people are getting fed up really fast. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that um, that's mostly the essay. It's already up on the website. Yeah, you can um, find it at um, reallifemag.com. If you want to read it, you can do that there. If you'd like to listen to it as well, uh, there will be audio embedded in the website, uh, which we will link to in the show notes, and then get the podcast version, which is a real life audio edition, available wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Yep. Yeah, it's really badass. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 and it's great. a great essay. It, you know, the essay has like all these really funny lines in it. And, you know, David's writing is just really like engaging and he makes all kinds of interesting connections that maybe aren't obvious to uh, somebody who hasn't been thinking about this shit for years like he has. So I highly, it's, it's a great read. I highly recommend it. Thank you. And a great listen if I, if I do say so myself. It absolutely is a, uh, an excellent listen. You haven't I even think, heard it yet. No, but I've listened to the first three and, uh, and they're excellent. Right. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Brittany Thank Lo- you very much. Yeah. Uh, Brittany lovingly narrates every every essay with yeah, care. Real Life Magazine did a really good uh, decision by getting the best narrator in the game. Really? <laughs> we're really all benefiting did. from it. You guys, you're making me blush. But seriously, it's a really good listen. I was listening to them while I'm blasting my ceilings downstairs. Nice. And yeah. like, you know, I appreciate the professionalism you bring to your craft. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I'll, I'll give our listeners the uh, the inside scoop of how this came up uh, how the audio edition of real life happened is i was talking to the editor-in-chief nathan who's a good friend of mine and um he was admitting that he doesn't listen to this podcast uh but he doesn't listen to a lot of podcasts because in his words he's like i think podcasts should just be people reading essays (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and i was like huh reading essay yeah see, i think part see, of it is yeah. that nathan is so good at banter that why would he want to listen yeah. to somebody else's right. banter yeah. when he because he's a great he's he's a great conversationalist that's just a skill of his but he just converses with himself all day it could be i don't know it's or like, he has lots of friends so maybe he's just, we, yeah, you don't he need, spends enough time talking to his own friends that he doesn't need to listen to <laughs> you know other people be friends i feel attacked i know right i know, I know. So, in a very related topic, Target's gig workers are going to strike to protest the switch to an algorithmic pay model, which algorithmic pay model <laughs> is some fucking dystopic shit right there. Yeah, um, I shudder to hear the phrase. Yeah, there, there's two, dyst- at least two dystopic things in this Vice article, like phrases. One of them is algorith- algorithmic pay model. The other one is company-owned Facebook group. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, that That sounds like fun to be a part of. Yeah, that sounds bad. All right. So this is going to take place on Wednesday. Workers from Shipped, which is the app that uh, I guess moderates orders from Target through these gig workers. It it sounds like it's like a competitor to Instacart. It is. Yeah. So it's a delivery app. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that workers liked preferred about working with Shipped versus Instacart was that they were paid a standard, like, uh, predictable wage. And so now with this new pay model, it's based on, you know, a million and a half factors that, like, you know, uh, like the current busyness at get, like, peak, you know, peak order times and all of these other things. Yeah, so, let's, let's actually drill down into that, yeah, right? Your, so, your pay will reflect be reflected by your effort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, official... that's what they said. Yeah. 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 So but before um, they got dropped into this like black box of algorithm algorithmic uh, pay. It, it was a uh, really straightforward. It was five dollars per ship with plus seven point five percent of the total. Right. So if 
you know, if you if you bought a hundred dollars worth of stuff, then like you seven point five dollars plus five dollars, it would be how much you get paid. Yeah, it seems really easy to uh, know what to expect to be paid for a specific amount of work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you can like just understand like how much effort you should put in, how many hours you should work. Is you know like okay, you do the math of like five dollars per order base, and then. 7.5 percent of you know and so it also informs like what kind of orders you should grab right like you like you want to fill the biggest orders because you want that 7.5 percent to really return right so I, and they don't say this in the article but as soon as i said that i i'm now starting to think like i wonder if part of the problem is that they target wants um this to work for smaller orders I mean, I would say, though, real quick, I would yeah. much ra- if I was a worker, I would much rather do a smaller order because it's less effort. You're getting that base five dollars for l- like a like a more Good expensive point. order yeah. is uh, in all likelihood going to require getting more merchandise, which is time intensive. Mm. So my, I would think again, I, I don't know, but like, yeah, I, I would think that smaller orders would be better because you're getting that base pay. Um, that's a good point and you do a bunch of small ones in the store and then you go and deliver exactly yeah yeah. and and the company has been rolling this out uh with marketing toward the workers that this is somehow going to improve their their their, uh take-home pay even though people who have experienced this are saying that in fact it's actually reduced their pay by about 30 percent to 50 as much as 50 percent yeah which is fucked up and there's a really easy solution there right like why don't they just do whichever is more so the old model or the new model, and then whichever gets you paid more, that's what you get. That'd be like the way if, you know, Target was actually trying to benefit the workers, um, they would be able to roll this out. Yeah, yeah. I, and clearly that's that's not the point, right? So like what goes into this new algorithm, what did we say? It was, it was a, like... So the, the variables include high store traffic times, street traffic, and estimated store-to-door travel time. Which which is just like the the variables that get put into a completely opaque, unknowable, uh, proprietary algorithm. So yeah, so and like, how do those factors what... actually translate to what you're getting paid? Yeah, like, there's right, yeah, no you, reason. No yeah, exactly. So yeah, what's happened is uh, in cities where this has been rolled out. Workers have seen their wages plummet by between 30 and 40 percent and as much as 50 percent. And here's a quote from the article. We have learned a great deal in the past six years about compensation and how external factors may influence the shopping experience. A spokesperson from SHIP told Motherboard, quote, we are updating our pay model to better account for the actual effort it takes to complete delivery orders by factoring in estimated drive time, the number of items in the order, peak shopping windows, and location. This means that some orders may pay out differently than before since payment is based on effort and not the value of the order. So by different, we mean half. Well, and you know, here's the thing. Part of that, like the logic of this is not inherently anti-worker, right? Like coming at it from, you know, hospitality standpoint, the idea of getting tipped based on the cost of the order really only benefits the boss because it basically means if you upsell a customer on a on a product then you can accept expect a larger tip so in in part you would think it might make sense to pay people not on the value of the order but on the actual work that it takes to complete the order the problem is when that's not transparently standardized and you know you're not just saying okay like we're going to pay you a a good wage for 
um, orders that, you know, have a lot of drive time on them. Instead, what they've basically done is using this algorithmic method, they have, they yes, they are tying payment to drive time and store busyness and whatever else. But at the bottom line is if those factors, if you're basing pay on those factors and it ends up being less, you have destroyed the logic of not tying payment to the value of an order, right? You know? Um, Also, how is effort in this case, not just time? Yeah. Right? Like, if that's the case, then just just clock in. Just fucking say, (laughs) took me, you know, 45 minutes to complete this. So give me my $12, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. This is some real Pete Buttigieg shit where, you know, like complexity and choice and all this other confusing shit that feels like it's more accurately reflecting effort or uh your choices or you know your individual snowflake identity or whatever means tested horseshit yeah. who actually needs something yeah 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 it, it's all a way it's all just ways to obscure the uh causes of what happens to you right or like like how your actions you know have consequences right like you, you just start keep losing sight of of how the world reacts to your actions because everything is now just confusing and you're like i well that seemed like really hard and i only got paid like 40 dollars, and i don't really understand why and it's on un- and it's an unknowable and just that itself i think does a lot of really important work for target's bottom line where you just now you have workers that are like well i'm gonna try really hard on this one because i think like the last couple times i did something similar like I got paid okay, and then but then and you but then you might not right, and and because it's also going to constantly change, right, in, in a way that you can't know. Yeah, so I, I think also just like making it unpredictable for the worker also redounds to their benefit because it just means you're going to work as hard as possible to try to get this slot machine that runs your life to to spit out more coins it's yeah. gonna, you're going to speed on the way to your delivery um you know you're going to rush through the store just like picking things up as quickly as possible um just because you're trying to like outpace the algorithm uh so not only does it make it like a more miserable work experience and a more unpredictable work experience which means people can't rely on it as like a significant source of income it also makes it inherently more dangerous you know i mean if you're getting paid based on some like predetermined door to door delivery time what is your incentive there yeah. to beat the door to door delivery time right to fill more orders if you're getting say, paid the same like rate amount for or the same base amount for a specific door to door delivery time and we already saw um uh amazon i think it's called flex or it might have been another system that amazon was running that they used a similar model and uh they were finding that yeah uh amazon drivers were like breaking all all sorts of laws and like driving really erratically because they were literally driving packages onto front porches yeah yeah Yeah, it's because they're like living in like the movie speed or something you know where you're just like you have to like (laughs) get cranked yeah yeah because instead of of the car exploding it's like you know your your children go hungry it's like fuck man like also the fact that they use the word effort is like haunting me because like what the fuck is that all about isn't the whole idea of like automating and making these systems elegant so that like people are going to use less effort for greater reward like if you're going to be paying me based on effort fuck it i'll ride a bicycle i'll run i'll fucking run to the place (laughs) and deliver this package because that shit uses way more effort and therefore you must pay me more (laughs) like yeah 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 i've been trying to learn spanish so like if i try to do the whole thing in spanish is that (laughs) do i get paid more for that like what is like so good luck to them. 
you know, they're striking with particular demands. A lot of them are just the demands, you know, if you read them and we'll post the article in the show notes, are essentially asking to be shifted from an independent contractor gig model to an employee model where you are owed a minimum wage and time off and blah, blah, blah. David mentions this in his essay uh, for real life, but you know, what was it? 95% of the jobs added under the Obama administration were gig jobs. And Trump administration as well, yeah. Yeah, 95% of new jobs over the last decade no health insurance are gig jobs yeah, no health insurance no paid time off no guaranteed rate of pay higher um, taxes higher taxes yeah because you know i'm a i'm a gig worker i pay taxes out the fucking ass yeah it's a it's a it's a broken model and there are just no worker protections and so that's the economy that, you know, Barack Obama left us and that we're increasingly speeding towards is one where there are just no guarantees that your pay will actually mar- match your effort. Um, and, and so, like, the incentive structure is completely broken and it's bleak. It's bleak. And I don't know a way out of it. Like, we were talking off mic about this Bernie Biden task force bullshit. And one of the things that uh, they just couldn't come to agreement on was a federal jobs guarantee, you know? So without like... Entitlement. (laughs) Without like significant movement towards creating good paying, reliable jobs. And then they get pissed off at millennials for not wanting to have fucking babies. Like why would any... I shouldn't say that. Like plenty of people are are having babies and be like, God bless you and good, good, good on you. But like... How much harder is it to commit to, say, raising a family in a world where fucking shipped can cut your pay by 50% at any time they want and you can't predict it and there's nothing you can fucking do about it other than go find some other gig job that maybe will pay better for the next three or four years until they're well enough established and beating out the competition that they can just gut your pay again too. I was on a bicycle ride the other day and I stopped to do some dips at like a bike rack, like on the trail. And there was this old man with like a Vietnam veteran hat on. And he was like, ah, I'll never do those ever again. I had to do so much calisthenics back in the war. And we got to talking and he brought up this, this claim because we were talking about like the protests and we were talking about, you know, police accountability and like all the sort of local stuff that was going on. And he's like, you know what I think the problem is? Entitlement. And then he went on about how he thinks the Zoomers and the Millennials are just so entitled. Uh, and they, That's a they, really original they, thought. They, I'm, I, I've never I heard anyone that, bring yeah. that up. Yeah. So I got into talking to him in about a minute in after I was explaining all of the dynamics about inflation of college and the expense and the deflation of uh, jobs and like the, uh, the gig economy and everything else. His whole perspective of the entitlement just evaporated and he conceded entirely that he was full of shit it was such a weird <laughs> thing he was just Whoa. like oh yeah i guess i guess i'm just i i don't know i don't know why i believe that <laughs> Yo, dude, i like having bartended for years and met so many fucking boomers who believe that same thing the second and that like uh, similar arguments have been made for like you know homophobia and racism is that when you actually talk to a person with a life experience that's different from yours and it forces you to challenge the assumptions that you've made about people um it melts away very quickly and i've seen that happen with so many fucking conservative boomers who would make the exact same argument oh it's about entitlement and it's and if you spend even like the five fucking minutes talking to them 
in a way, and, and here's what's important, is that if you do it in a way that comes from curiosity and understanding and not a like, fuck you, boomer, you don't know what the fuck yeah. you're, do you know anything about wage stagnation, you <laughs> fucking idiot? No, yeah, no, you're faith. not going to get very far that way. But if you come to them and probably part of why this is my experience is because I was a hospitality worker and you don't have the option to say, fuck you, you dumb piece of shit, boomer. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. If instead you say, I mean, I can see, yeah, I guess I know what you're saying, but I think a much more significant factor is X, Y, Z. You're, it's a much easier to, turns out it's a lot easier to persuade somebody of your own you know, opinions and your beliefs. And let's say what is more factually accurate if you're not a little piece of shit to them. So that's my advice to folks is if you are interested in actually changing boomers minds about some of this stuff, just come at it from a, from a perspective of like curiosity and trying to understand why they believe that and sharing your own experiences. I don't want to like police people for being nasty or anything, but like on, and this is quite a divergence from what we're currently talking about, but I just have to say like, in my experience, you'd be surprised how easy it is to move people, especially, you know, older people who have these bizarre assumptions that aren't based in fact, you'd be surprised how easy it is to persuade them if you just treat them like a human being who's capable of changing their mind. Because most of them, believe it or not, are. Yeah. And and this goes for like a lot of, you know, the older generation that I'm related to that I, I talk to. It's like, I don't blame them. There's like a multi-billion dollar industry that profits off of propagandizing that they're the only worthy recipients of this world and that the, yeah. th- the generations that are coming are just, you know, these vicious cancel culture ghouls who, you know, are dye their hair and are trans and blah, blah, blah. And just like, it's, you listen to the fucking uh, right wing media and it it's, it makes the coming generations seem just like completely out of touch with reality yeah. as opposed to trying to grapple with a completely different reality in terms of their life expectancy than two, three generations before because of material conditions. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. The idea of just good faith argumentation is like, I think what we really need more of now, uh, because as soon as I started talking to this guy, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. My grandkids, they all going to like state college and graduating with like $50,000 in debt. And I worry about them. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's not entitlement. Entitlement is not, is a red herring. (laughs) Yeah. They're actually entitled to fewer things. (laughs) There's like fewer entitlements in the world. The problem is not enough entitlements. Yeah. 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 We're not not entitled entitled to shit. Unlike your generation. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> uh, speaking of that generation, is there anything else in that uh, task force that, I mean, that is worth talking about? You know, I considered, uh, I considered whether or not we should really talk about it. And, like, we can get into a little bit, maybe. But basically, you know, I think the Biden camp is trying to learn from the mistakes that Hillary made in 2016 and sort of br- make more actual overtures to the progressive wing of the party, which I don't even know that it makes any sense to call progressives part of the Democratic Party at this point anymore, but whatever. And, you know, it was just like this was announced in May and they just released, I don't know, a hundred and something page uh, report on the policy proposals in like six different areas. You know, one of the healthcare, climate change, a couple of others. And um, it was basically just like, you know, Sanders and Biden nominated different people to be on these task force task forces AOC and is on one AOC of them. Is on yeah. one of them. Um, FIES. Don't you love the word task force. It's like, you know, the. This organization of people are like, all right, we're going to get this task done. 
by any means necessary. Like, I just, <laughs> just imagine, like, like kitted up people with, like, clipboards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think different, they made more headway on different topics than others. Like, I guess people were pretty satisfied with the outcomes of the climate change stuff, or at least some Sanders people were, were pleasantly surprised. But, like, okay, so the, the climate change task force said uh, carbon neutral by 2050. That's too fucking late, motherfuckers. Like, I don't know what <laughs> what world y'all are living in. But, like, it keeps getting pushed off. I remember 2025, back in, yeah. like, 2012, yeah. people were like, yeah, we could probably do it by 2025. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and, and I think, like, they made some headway on universal pre-K, but things like, you know, cannibal legalization, no dice. Can't uh, be a cannibal. Bail, bail reform. <laughs> uh, can, can, did I say cannibal? I think you did. <laughs> Cannabis. The cannibalonoids. (laughs) I can't believe the Biden camp won't even allow us to legalize cannibalism. It's pretty fucked up. Pretty sus, dude. Well, if if two consenting adults want want to to eat eat a third consenting adult... So, you know, in a contract that's been agreed upon. This is the only... Well, to be fair, they thought they thought the third one was cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is the only uh, condition upon which I'm a trad calf. Um, yeah, yeah, you can you can cannibalize, but but only your savior. <laughs> <laughs> only through but, transubstantiation you know... of crackers. And, you know, the Biden camp is still all they're saying is that they're reviewing the document. They're not even so. So, you know, first of all, it has to be uh, accepted by the Biden campaign as, you know, a good. And then it has to be integrated into the Democratic Party platform. And then it has to be enacted as legislation. So it's just like there's a fucking lot of distance between this these milk toast policy proposals and them actually registering in the real world at all and bernie sanders and his fucking people are just like fawning over it like it was the biggest success they and it's just i fucking hate it i hate to see it i have become i mean you guys you guys know me i was big bernie sanders cheerleader for a long time well yeah but I mean, um, you know, the Bernie Sanders we're seeing now isn't the same Bernie Sanders we saw, you know, six, seven months ago because of material conditions. Well, he was defeated. Yes. You know, I mean, that's, de- yeah. And the momentum is completely scattered to the wind. Yep. Um, and the idea that somehow he has leverage over the Democratic Party uh, because of the fact that there is such a huge contingency of people who wanted his policies is bullshit because the Democratic Party knows they don't fucking want to win that's like the thing that i'm getting from this whole election like biden is not trying to win well the other thing is that now that trump is nosediving because of his handling of coronavirus they really don't need (laughs) need the left wing of the party because the motivation to get trump out of office is so fucking high biden is beating trump in double digits in every national poll um Swing states are looking, and and again, one of the lessons that we should have learned from 2016, but our collective consciousness is too fucking stupid to do it, is that you can't trust these goddamn polls, which is what all these fucking campaign, you know, hirelings are uh, are are counting on that you know these polls are accurate, and Biden's just going to blow Trump out of the water. These I mean, polls we'll ain't see. loyal. These. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the gist of it is basically like it's I wouldn't call it a nothing burger. It's at least progress from how Clinton treated the progressive wing of the party in 2016, which was basically just like you lost. Fuck you. Um, at least Biden is like offering a highly symbolic olive branch, which, yeah. you know, again, I don't give a fuck about, but some people do and some people see it as substantive and we'll see. We'll see if any of it even makes it into the Democratic Party platform and then if any of that even matters because, yeah. as we know, 
it's, you know, it's a fucking bill of goods half the time. Yeah. I don't remember who was saying this, but there, there was somebody who I was listening to this week that was talking about how it's really odd that you're seeing more establishment Democrats talking about like defunding and abolishing the police, even though that's incredibly unlikely to happen on any type of like national level, then you're seeing them embrace something wildly popular like Medicare for all. Yeah, I know. Which you could do. Well, but that's <laughs> you the could thing. absolutely do that's that. And why... like, there would not be a nationwide reaction to it. But you the know? reason for that is that if they supported Medicare for all, they'd have to actually do it. And if they just give, you know, like lukewarm vocal support for defunding or abolishing the police, they know they don't actually have to do that because it's not politically feasible currently yeah or it's it's um, also like not in their wheel like it's not in their jurisdiction like cities because it has to happen at, at yes. the yeah yeah cities levels, need yeah. to need to cities do and the counties, defunding. Yeah. yeah like i mean like a lot of my, a lot of their money does come from state and federal sources but like what yeah like watch them zero out any sort of program that gives money to cops good fuck you yeah no. right, right, right yeah though seattle did uh um their city council said that they would slash the 50%. police budget by 50 percent. yeah uh are we doing the gorilla yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's get into a little bit of a wildflower let's here. Do the gorilla. Let's do the gorilla. Uh, endangered gorilla in New Orleans expecting first baby. This is from uh, Associated Press. One of the critically endangered gorillas in the New Orleans Zoo is expecting her first baby and already is being trained with a doll to hold her future offspring. It's super cute. I'm going to post the. Uh, article and you, you can see the pictures of it but it's really cute um 13 year old tumani's training doll doesn't look anything like a gorilla because a stuffed toy could easily be torn apart the audubon zoo's chief <laughs> yo gorillas are fucking no joke um instead a rugged section of canvas firehouse tubing has been woven roughly to the propor- has been woven roughly to the proportions and weight of a four pound newborn gorilla oh um <laughs> i haven't seen it myself mclean said um mclean being one of the zoo's trainers apparently it's pretty ugly but it does the job <laughs> so they're an estimate so these are uh western lowland gorillas they're an estimated three hundred and sixty-two thousand in the wild in 2016 and their numbers have been falling about 2.7 percent a year so they are critically endangered um according to the international union for the conservation of nature and uh, you know, all the usual factors going into it, habitat loss, disease, uh, particularly the Ebola virus has ravaged their populations. Really? And illegal hunting for meat. Who the hell is out here eating gorillas? Other gorillas. I know that. I think some gorillas eat other gorillas. I think. Chimps, chimps definitely yeah, do. Yeah, chimps do. But yeah. Well, I have to say now I support Biden's stance on illegal yeah. can- cannibalism. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> but only for gorillas. So, but they don't even live in the United States, so like we can't make any laws. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. We can't even legislate that. Out of your jurisdiction. <laughs> so the due date is anywhere between mid-July and August. And uh, the 160-pound expectant mother is receiving twice-monthly ultrasounds and has undergone training on how to pick up the doll, including how to hold it to her chest where a baby gorilla could nurse. So yeah, good luck to Tumani. I hope the pregnancy goes nice and smooth and that you don't uh, rip your baby apart. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> Crucially, you know, once you go through the whole rigmarole of labor, 
don't tear that baby don't apart. Don't tear that baby apart. A lot of people make that mistake. It's true. But Where t- they're like, look at the little baby. It looks pretty rugged. And then they just tear it apart. Yeah. Yeah. But they, it should probably yeet that uh, t- tire baby that they built it uh, because... Yeah, I don't know. There's it's a not, little uncanny. Yeah, there's yeah. there's there's not enough uh, 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 suckling for the two of them. Right. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> all right, so uh, I think that'll do it for us for this week. Um, thanks to all our new patrons. Welcome aboard, and thank you so much for your support. Today is going to be the first installment of uh vladimir lenin's the state and revolution so i've done the preface so my goal for this is because state and rev is broken into lots of nice little neat sections i'm going to try to keep excerpts to around 10 to 15 minutes that'll make it a little less time intensive for me it'll keep the episodes down to a more manageable length and uh hopefully you know folks are more interested in sticking around for the end if it's you know not 20 30 minutes long so um you're gonna hear today the preface and the first section of chapter one now a lot of what lenin's going through here is some of the uh debates and disagreements about marxist theory that were happening at the time in russia and throughout much of europe And so if you want a good primer on all of that stuff, I highly recommend, and this came a recommendation from James, friend of the the pod, to listen to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. The last season that he is currently halfway through is on the Russian Revolution. And it's a great primer on Marxism generally, but also hashing out a lot of these disagreements among, you know, uh, like unionists and activists and revolutionaries that were happening around the turn of the century and so um you can check that out the first like probably two or three episodes are really much of the primer that you need to understand some of what lenin's talking about please forgive my pronunciations there are a lot of russian names in this and i did my best yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. It's a, a lot. There's going to be a ton of quote, quoted passages from Marx and Engels specifically, which I think will be really helpful because you'll kind of get a taste of those theorists if it, if it's not a territory that you're already familiar with. So, yeah, hope you guys enjoy it. Well, hell yeah. And um, I'm excited for what we're about to record, which is a bonus episode that is going to, uh, by popular demand for the first time, uh, feature some Star Trek analysis. We are going to be talking about the two-parter, the best of both worlds from Star Trek The Next Generation. And yeah, if you want to check that out, that'll be on our bonus feed. We're also going to talk about the cancel culture, let- the letter. Yeah, um, that's all you need to say is the yeah, letter. the letter. Uh, so if you guys want to hear that, head on over to patreon.com slash ironweeds for as little as a dollar. You can get two bonus episodes a month. Yeah, you'll learn And all... also the full Kropotkin audiobook. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the whole Kropotkin audiobook is uh, standalone, ready to be downloaded. It's three parts, right? Like it's in three, three parts. Three, three files. Um, it's a great listen uh, all the way through. And it goes super fast. I it's actually kind of surprising. It's only like, like a six and a half, seven hour audio book yeah, altogether. Uh, but, it, you know, but it's dense. But, it is. but uh, it's some, it is something that like being, having it be read to you, it, you get all the inflections. Brittany does a great job of getting all the inflections that uh, that style of writing should create in your brain. Like, I feel like if, if you read it contemporaneously, like when Kropotkin was writing it, you would know how to like make those 
those affectations in your brain like you would read it that way and i think we've lost that now and britney sort of recreated it for you so it makes it a lot easier to thank you for read, saying that because that was the a, whole thing that was yeah. a big goal of mine was to read it in such a way that would make it intelligible like or at least maybe um what's the word that i want here you natural can, in you a way that's the not... passion of Kropotkin. Like, <laughs> well, thank you. You know, because I, I remember when you, while you were producing it, you would have like little intros and you'd sort of talk about how you have slight disagreements on his analysis, or maybe he overemphasized some type of contradiction with Marxist Leninists that he didn't really think was existent. But like when I listened to it, I thought you were like a, a dyed in the wool convert. I was like, <laughs> whoa, yeah. like Britney's t- suddenly yeah. an anarcho communist. Yeah. This is interesting. Uh, yeah. So, if you um if you don't think you would like it because like you've tried to read like early uh, or like late 19th century early 20th century writings and like they're just too impenetrable try this yeah is this this is different it's different and i think i think you might get it and hopefully i'm able to recreate that experience with the lenin and you know sort of use like inflection and narrative style to make it a little more palatable and uh comprehensible yeah at home britney is now just like shaking her fist in the air like every time i'm like (laughs) what do you want for dinner and she's like no brussels sprouts (laughs) and she's just like shouting and she like like there's a train in our house now which i'm not sad about at all but but you didn't have to like just like ram it into the into the back of the house and then like you just like give speeches off of it it's very weird well, you know, that's going to be the next six months for you. So yeah, I don't know what yeah, to tell you. you gotta Suck get it the character. fuck up. Yeah, you yeah. Gotta get that, it's, it's praxis. Yeah. Praxis. All right. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram. <laughs> Ironweeds Pod. Uh, shoot us an email at ironweedspod at, at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. We love you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Preface. The question of the state is now acquiring particular importance, both in theory and in practical politics. The imperialist war has immensely accelerated and intensified the process of transformation of monopoly capitalism into state monopoly capitalism. The monstrous oppression of the working people by the state, which is merging more and more with the all-powerful capitalist associations, is becoming increasingly monstrous. The advanced countries, we mean their hinterland, are becoming military convict prisons for the workers. The unprecedented horrors and miseries of the protracted war are making the people's position unbearable and increasing their anger. The world proletarian revolution is clearly maturing. The question of its relation to the state is acquiring practical importance. The elements of opportunism that accumulated over the decades of comparatively peaceful development have given rise to the trend of social chauvinism, which dominated the official socialist parties throughout the world. This trend, socialism in words and chauvinism in deeds, Plekhanov, Potrasov, Breshkovskaya, Rubanovich, and in slightly veiled form, Tseretelli, Chernov and company in Russia, Scheidemann, Legion, David and others in Germany, Renaudel, Ged, and Vandervelde in France and Belgium, Hindman and the Fabians in England, etc., etc., is conspicuous for the base, servile adaptation of the leaders of socialism to the interests not only of their national bourgeoisie, but of their state, 
for the majority of the so-called great powers have long been exploiting and enslaving a whole number of small and weak nations. And the imperialist war is a war for the division and redivision of this kind of booty. The struggle to free the working people from the influence of the bourgeoisie in general, and of the imperialist bourgeoisie in particular, is impossible without a struggle against opportunist prejudices concerning the state. First of all, we examine the theory of Marx and Engels of the state, and dwell in particular detail on those aspects of this theory which are ignored or have been distorted by the opportunists. Then we deal specially with the one who is chiefly responsible for these distortions, Karl Kotsky, the best-known leader of the Second International, 1889-1914, which has met with such miserable bankruptcy in the present war. Lastly, we sum up the main results of the experience of the Russian revolutions of 1905, and particularly of 1917. Apparently, the latter is now, early August 1917, completing the first stage of its development. But this revolution as a whole can only be understood as a link in a chain of socialist proletarian revolutions being caused by the imperialist war. The question of the relation of the socialist proletarian revolution to the state, therefore, is acquiring not only practical political importance, but also the significance of a most urgent problem of the day, the problem of explaining to the masses what they will have to do before long to free themselves from capitalist tyranny. Chapter 1. Class Society and the State Part 1. The State a product of the irreconcilability of class antagonisms. What is now happening to Marx's theory has, in the course of history, happened repeatedly to the theories of revolutionary thinkers and leaders of oppressed classes fighting for emancipation. During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing classes constantly hounded them, received their theories with the most savage malice, the most furious hatred and the most unscrupulous campaigns of lies and slander. After their death, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons, to canonize them, so to say, and to hallow their names to a certain extent for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping the latter, while at the same time robbing the revolutionary theory of its substance, blunting its revolutionary edge and vulgarizing it. Today, the bourgeoisie and the opportunists within the labor movement concur in this doctoring of Marxism. They omit, obscure, or distort the revolutionary side of this theory, its revolutionary soul. They push to the foreground and extol what is or seems acceptable to the bourgeoisie. All the social chauvinists are now Marxists. Don't laugh. And more and more frequently, German bourgeois scholars— only yesterday specialists in the annihilation of Marxism, are speaking of the national German Marx who, they claim, educated the labor unions which are so splendidly organized for the purpose of waging a predatory war. In these circumstances, in view of the unprecedentedly widespread distortion of Marxism, our prime task is to reestablish what Marx really taught on the subject of the state. This will necessitate a number of long quotations from the works of Marx and Engels themselves. Of course, long quotations will render the text cumbersome and not help at all to make it popular reading, but we cannot possibly dispense with them. All, 
or at any rate all the most essential passages in the works of Marx and Engels on the subject of the state, must by all means be quoted as fully as possible, so that the reader may form an independent opinion of the totality of the views of the founders of scientific socialism, and of the evolution of those views, and so that their distortion by the Kotskyism now prevailing may be documentarily proved and clearly demonstrated. Let us begin with the most popular of Engels's works, The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, the sixth edition of which was published in Stuttgart as far back as 1894. We have translated the quotations from the German originals, as the Russian translations, while very numerous, are for the most part either incomplete or very unsatisfactory. Summing up his historical analysis, Engels says, quote, The state is, therefore, by no means a power forced on society from without, just as little as it is the reality of the ethical idea, the image and reality of reason, as Hegel maintains. Rather, it is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an insoluble contradiction with itself, that it has split into irreconcilable antagonisms which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms, these classes with conflicting economic interests, might not consume themselves and society in fruitless struggle, it became necessary to have a power, seemingly standing above society, that would alleviate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of order. And this power, arisen out of society but placing itself above it, and alienating itself more and more from it, is the state. Pages 177 through 78, 6th edition. This expresses with perfect clarity the basic idea of Marxism with regard to the historical role and the meaning of the state. The state is a product and a manifestation of the irreconcilability of class antagonisms. The state arises where, when, and insofar as class antagonism objectively cannot be reconciled. And, conversely, the existence of the state proves that the class antagonisms are irreconcilable. It is on this most important and fundamental point that the distortion of Marxism, proceeding along two main lines, begins. On the one hand, the bourgeois, and particularly the petty bourgeois ideologists, compelled under the weight of indisputable historical facts to admit that the state only exists where there are class antagonisms and a class struggle, correct Marx in such a way as to make it appear that the state is an organ for the reconciliation of classes. According to Marx, the state could neither have arisen nor maintained itself had it been possible to reconcile classes. From what the petty bourgeois and Philistine professors and publicists say, with quite frequent and benevolent references to Marx, it appears that the state does reconcile classes. According to Marx, the state is an organ of class rule, an organ for the oppression of one class by another. It is the creation of order which legalizes and perpetuates this oppression by moderating the conflict between classes. In the opinion of the petty bourgeois politicians, however, order means the reconciliation of classes and not the oppression of one class by another. To alleviate the conflict means reconciling classes, not depriving the oppressed classes of definite means and methods of struggle to overthrow the oppressors. For instance, when, 
In the Revolution of 1917, the question of significance and role of the state arose in all its magnitude as a practical question demanding immediate action, and, moreover, action on a mass scale, all the social revolutionaries and Mensheviks descended at once to the petty bourgeois theory that the state reconciles classes. Innumerable resolutions and articles by politicians of both these parties are thoroughly saturated with this petty bourgeois and Philistine reconciliation theory. That the state is an organ of the rule of a definite class which cannot be reconciled with its antipode, the class opposite to it, is something the petty bourgeois Democrats will never be able to understand. Their attitude to the state is one of the most striking manifestations of the fact that our socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks are not socialists at all, a point that we Bolsheviks have always maintained. But petty bourgeois Democrats using near-socialist phraseology. On the other hand, the Kotskyite distortion of Marxism is far more subtle. Theoretically, it is not denied that the state is an organ of class rule, or that class antagonisms are irreconcilable. But what is overlooked or glossed over is this. If the state is the product of the irreconcilability of class antagonisms, if it is a power standing above society and alienating itself more and more from it, it is clear that the liberation of the oppressed class is impossible not only without a violent revolution, but also without the destruction of the apparatus of state power which was created by the ruling class and which is the embodiment of this alienation. As we shall see later, Marx very explicitly drew this theoretically self-evident conclusion on the strength of a concrete historical analysis of the tasks of the revolution. And, as we shall show in detail further on, it is this conclusion which Kotsky has forgotten and distorted.